If you would, please turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 4. pray. Father, thank you so much for this moment where we get to read your word. God, we seek to understand it. And God, we desire to be submissive to what you speak. You are our God, and Lord, you rule us by your word. So, Lord, we come under your authority now. God, teach us, please. Humble us, Lord, and teach us. Thank you so much, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32 through 40 really quick before we read this just kind of remember where we're at in Deuteronomy this is Moses preaching the book of Deuteronomy we have Moses preaching um, to the people of Israel to that new generation that's about to head into the promised land sort of just before they head into the promised land he's preaching to them and this paragraph that we're about to read is the end of this sort of first speech in Deuteronomy that began in chapter 1, verse 6. So since chapter 1, verse 6, we've been reading and expounding on Moses' first speech, and here we are at the last paragraph. And then after this, there'll be a very short um, narrative section um, to the end of the chapter. And then chapter 5, verse 1, we'll pick up another speech of Moses to the people of Israel that we'll dig into. So let's read it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Listen to how Moses, how he lands the plane here on this first speech. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He lets you hear His voice that He might discipline you, And on earth, he lets you see his great fire 
And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater, greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. I'm going to try to take this passage under a few headings. The first one being this. In this passage, we see the uniqueness of God's dealings with Israel. The uniqueness of God's dealings with Israel. You see that mainly in verses 32 through 34. Now what Moses is calling Israel to do here in verse 32 through 34 is to ask some questions. So if you notice it, verse 32 says, For ask now, A-S-K, ask. He's telling them to ask something. Keep reading, it says, And ask from one end of heaven to the other. So ask this and ask that and you get to verse 33 and there's a question that is asked and, and then you get to verse 34 and there's another question. So he, he's moving them in these verses to ask some questions, to question some things here. I want you to view Moses like a teacher and his students are Israel and Moses the teacher is about to send his students on a massive research project. Now think about how massive this research project is. Think about the scope of this project. If you're looking at verse 32, how far back in history did he want them to take their research? Look at verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, well how far back, which were before you since the day that God created man on earth. Go back to the creation of all things. Go back to Adam. And I want you to go from there until now. And that's the scope of this research project that he's telling them to think about and consider. Now, who are they supposed to interview? Well, keep reading in verse 32. It says, ask from one end of heaven to the other. So from one end of heaven to the other, cosmic research project. I want you to ask everybody, men and angels, get all the information from all of history and all the earth and all the heavens. Get it all together. I want you to do some research here. I want you to see how unique these things are that God has done. So what does he want them to research? Again, look at verse 32. Whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Cosmic Research Project to find out, has anything like this, has anything such as this ever happened? Has it ever even been heard of before? I want you to go research that, Israel. I want you to see how unique God's dealings with Israel 
actually is. Now, what is it? Has such a great thing like this ever happened before? What, what great thing? Well, if we're thinking about the whole speech from chapter 1 till now, it's all the stuff that, that Moses has been laying out. Remember God did this with you, Israel. Remember God did this, and remember God did this, and all the dealings of God with Israel. Remember these things. Has God ever dealt like this with a nation? Now, specifically, there's two main things, two events that he brings up in these questions in verse 33 and verse 34. Two main questions. And the, things that, and, and the, two, the two main events that he gets them to think about are, number one, in verse 33, when God came down on Mount Sinai and he spoke to them. He spoke to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai. So, so that's number one. And event number two is when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. And he, in the Exodus, delivered them out. So he draws their attention to two main events in verse 33 and 34. When he spoke to them from Mount Sinai, when God came down and spoke. And when God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Now let's look at those more carefully. Verse 33, event one here. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? So what's he wanting them to think about? What's he wanting them to remember here? What's he trying to draw their attention to? He wants them to remember that scene at Sinai. Remember that? Think about that phrase. He says, God spoke where? Out, this is in verse 33, out of the midst of the fire. He says, you remember that? You remember that whole scene? God spoke out of the midst of the fire. Let me, let, I want to read this to you. Remember what hopefully they're remembering when they hear this. Exodus 19. Listen to verse 16. This is that event. This is that scene. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Can you imagine the storm, and the trumpet blast, and everyone shaking, trembling in their boots? Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. So he wants them to rem remember that scene. And then there he is. God comes down on that mountain. And what does he do? He wants them to remember here the audible voice of God. They actually heard the audible voice of God from that mountain. Listen to it. Deuteronomy 4.33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard? So the scene, the trembling, the, the earthquake, the fire, and they hear God's voice. Remember that. Has this ever happened before? 
As you do your research, has this ever happened before in all of history? And not only does he want them to remember the fire and the scene and the audible voice of God, but he wants them to remember, and you survived that. Verse 33 again. Has anybody ever heard these things? Then the last phrase says, and still live? I mean, what's the miracle here? Is the miracle here that you heard the voice of God from the mountain and the storm and the fire and the smoke? Is that the miracle or is the miracle that you heard God's voice and you're still alive? You're not dead. I believe the answer is both. And so he draws their attention specifically to event one. God speaks to them from that holy mountain and they're, they're still alive. Now, verse 34, he's drawing their attention to event two. Let's look at it more deeply here. Verse 34, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. What's he want them to remember here? You remember God brought you out of this nation. He, he actually delivered you his nation from another nation. You were enslaved there. You were in bondage in that place. And God ripped you out of there. He delivered you. He rescued you, he rescued you, you from that nation. Now how did he do it? And what you have here in this verse is this stack of words, just, just stacked up words to say, here's, here's how God did it. He wants them to remember this. He wants them questioning, do, doing the research project, thinking, man, has God ever done anything like this before? And so he stacks up these words to say, here's how God did it. And here's the words. How did God deliver them out of Egypt? First word is by trials. By trials, I believe this is speaking about the trials that the Egyptians went through and, and, and the, the Israelites had a front row seat to it all. They saw the plagues rain down on the Egyptians. They saw them go through everything with the frogs and, and, and every, everything with the darkness falling down on the land and everything with the death of their firstborn. He, they saw it, front row seat, the trials these people went through because God was delivering his people. It says by signs and by wonders. These are the, do you remember these ten plagues, the, the power, the magnificent power that God showed as he flexed his power and brought his people out? You remember the context around this in Deuteronomy 4 is, is, is anti-idol context, right? Of, of don't worship false idols. Don't set up these false idols. Don't worship these false gods. And what you have in the ten plagues is, is God leaning in and not only showing his power, but showing his power over all the gods of the Egyptians. You could go read Exodus 12, 12, and it says that in those plagues, God is executing his judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. That God that's over light and darkness, I'll make it go dark for three days. That God that's over light, I'll do that. And he's, he's flexing his strength over these false gods, these signs and wonders in Egypt. The next word it says here is war. How did he bring them out? By signs and wonders and by war. 
You remember the Egyptians there at the Red Sea? They came, they pursued after Israel to, to, to kill them or to re-enslave them. They're going after them and God destroys them in the Red Sea. It says this in Exodus 14, 14, The Lord will fight for you. And that's what God did for Israel. The Lord will fight for you. Next phrase says, By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I love that phrase. A mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's a popular phrase in the Bible. I want to read one other place where it's at. Listen to Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So God creates all things, the heavens and the earth, by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. Verse 21 says this, same chapter. You, God, brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt, that's the Exodus, with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. That's our God, the God that has a mighty hand, a strong hand, and an outstretched arm to save. His arm is not too short that he cannot rescue. And so he's remembering this. It, it, Moses is telling Israel, remember this. Signs, wonders, war, mighty hand, outstretched arm, and then last phrases, by great deeds of terror. By great deeds of terror. God has shown himself that he is a God to be feared. That if you see God rightly, you tremble at him. You tremble at his word. He's a God to be feared. So think about what Moses is doing here. In verse 32 through 34, he's highlighting, he sends them on this research, this research project. Uh, go, go ask, you know, from one side of the heaven to the other side. In all of history, go ask, has anything like this, God speaking, God speaking out of the mountain, coming down and speaking at Mount Sinai, has anything like that, or, or God bringing his people, delivering his people out of Egypt, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, has anything like this ever been done? And of course the answer is, no, nothing like this has ever been done. These events are unprecedented. Now what he does, beginning in verse 35, and this would be a second heading in this passage, what he does, beginning in verse 35, is he begins to give reasons, reasons, for God dealing with Israel in this way. So verse 35 through 39, he's going to give reasons. In other words, okay, you've finished, you've finished the cosmic research project. You've done that. You understand the uniqueness of these things, the glory of these things that God has done. Now let me tell you the reasons he's done it. Let me tell you the why. Why has God, why has God done such a thing for Israel? And there's two major reasons that are mentioned here. One is for his glory, and two is because of his love. So two major reasons mentioned here. One, for his glory, and two, because of his love. So let's start with that first one, for his glory. Look at it in verse 35. To you it was shown, all these glorious deeds, 
specifically these two things, these two major events. To, these, to, to you, these things were shown. Why? That you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. This is for His glory. Why has, God, why has God done such a thing in Israel? That you might know that He's God and that there's no other. That you might know that the Lord is God and there's none like Him. That's why, that's why He's dealt with Israel in this way. Now here's a truth. It's that there's a truth here that brothers and sisters should never be forgotten. I know many of you know it. But I want to encourage you to never forget it. All things exist ultimately for God's glory. All of history unfolds as it unfolds for the praise of His name. And God is doing what He's doing in Israel. Why? That they might know that He is God and there's none like Him. There is no other. A truth that should never be forgotten. We exist, we breathe, we live, we are saved. All these things are for the glory of God. Our trials, our hardship, everything you can put in that blank is for His glory. All of it is unfolding for His namesake, for His praise. God, why, do you, why are you dealing with Israel like this? That they might know, verse 35, that they might know that I'm God and that there is no other, there is none like me. Now, the world that we live in is a sin-soaked world. I know you know that. And one of the fruits of being in a sin-soaked world is that it's a man-centered world. We live in a man-centered world. We tend to think things are all about us, all about them. Things are all about people. Even the, even the virtuous things that... that tend to happen in our culture of, of, of some, just imagine some sort of virtue. Even if you ask the question, why do that? Why is that done? The ultimate reason given will typically be because of humans, because of men, for the good of men, etc. Rather than for the glory of God, we live in a man-centered world because it's a sin-soaked world. Now the Bible calls us very clearly to God-centeredness. In other words, it's all about Him. Your life, this Bible, all the events of history, how God deals with Israel, ultimately, it's all about Him. It's all about His glory. Is it for the good of Israel? Yes, but ultimately, even more so, it's about God's namesake, about His praise, about His glory. It's God-centered. So if you ask the question, why did God deliver why did God deliver Israel out of slavery in Egypt? Why did God do that? Your ultimate answer cannot be for Israel's good. Your ultimate answer must be for God's glory. Listen, I want, I want to read this to you. Let's go back. This is in Exodus chapter 9. I'll read you just a few verses here. When God's delivering His people out of Egypt, listen to these phrases. This is right in the middle of the ten plagues when God's delivering them out of Egypt. Why? Why is God doing such a thing? Exodus 9 verse 14 says this. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that what? 
And notice the answer he gives here is not man-centered, it's God-centered. He says, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. There's none like me in all the earth. I'm delivering this people through mighty plagues that they might know that I'm God and there's none like me. Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 through 3, listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his servants. Why? That I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them. Why? That you may know that I'm the Lord. God, why are you doing this? Why are you delivering Israel out like this? Why are you doing it through plagues and signs and wonders that I might show my glory, that they might know that I'm God? That's the reason given here. I'll give you one more. Exodus 14. Exodus 14, verse 18. This is when God is delivering the people of Israel in the Red Sea. They're coming out and he's going to drown the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And it says this in verse 18. When this happens, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Why is God doing this ultimately? That he might be known for the glory of his name. That he might get glory over all things. It's a truth that should never be forgotten. Brothers and sisters, don't forget it. Um, the, the very well-known verse, Isaiah 43, verse 7. My people whom I created, it tells you why you were created. Created for my glory. For my glory. Isaiah 43, verse, 20, verse 21 says, These people that I made for myself, they shall declare my praise. You exist for the glory of God. Now, second reason he gives here. Why is God dealing with Israel like this, specifically these two major events from Mount Sinai, God speaks, and deliverance from slavery in Egypt? If the first reason is for God's glory, the second reason given here is because of His love. Because of His love. I wonder if you saw it. Look at it, verse 36. Out of heaven, He lets you hear His voice that he might discipline you. Now you might read that and think, that doesn't sound, I thought you said it's because of his love. But this says that he might discipline you. When you hear discipline there, I want to encourage you not to think of it as a negative thing, but to understand it as an expression of love. God did these things that he might discipline them. This is an expression of love. He did these things that he might, here's a way to think about it, deal with them as sons and daughters. He did this that he might deal with them as sons and daughters. The next place this word discipline is used is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. Know then, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines there it is as a man disciplines his son 
The Lord your God disciplines you. Why is God dealing with him this way? Verse Verse 36 says that he, might, that, that he might discipline you. What do you mean by that? That he might deal with you as sons. Like a father deals with his sons. That's how God's going to deal with you. And so God reveals these things. He shows you these things. That he might deal with you as sons. That's love. The author of Hebrews knew his Bible really well. He knew his Old Testament really well. And he says this, Hebrews 12, 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So I want you to see that as a reason here. Why does God deal with Israel the way he's dealing with them? For his glory and what else? Because of his love. I'm doing this, verse 36, that I might discipline you, that he might discipline you. He might treat you like sons and like daughters, this family love. If you're not sure about that, you can keep reading. Verse 37 says, and because he loved your fathers. There it is. Because he loves them, because he loved your fathers. He's treating them as sons. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. This is the kind of love that's being described here that we're not used to. It's a kind of love that's very hard for us to grasp. We're used to the kind of love that flows out of certain conditions being met so that that love is earned. Maybe it's goodness in somebody, therefore it earns the love. Or maybe it's something that would provoke pity towards someone, and therefore that love is earned in some sense. But it's a love that's dependent on certain conditions being met. And yet God's love for Israel here is not like that. This is something completely different. I want to show you why I say that. This love for Israel is is not based on certain conditions being met. Listen to Deuteronomy 9.6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. None of this is because of Israel's righteousness. None of it. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. What kind of love is this that would be set on people that are rebellious? This wasn't conditional. This wasn't if they met certain conditions, therefore I love them. This was, they were rebellious people. I'm not doing these things because of your righteousness or your goodness. No way. You've been rebellious since the moment I knew you. Listen to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Man, they must have been something to get that. But look at the next verse. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. I love that phrase. It wasn't because of anything special in you. It wasn't because of anything in you that was just, man, you just merited my favor. You, you know, you, you earned my love. It was nothing like that. He just says, he, and I love this phrase, I set my love on you. I set my love on you. Not because of some condition you met. The next phrase, well, then why? Verse 8, but it's because the Lord loves you. End of story. It's because he loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is a, this is a different kind of love than we're used to thinking about. Why has God done this? That he might discipline and he might treat you like sons and daughters this is a this is an this is an amazing kind of love you never you never heard anything like this except when you see it in God when you see it in Christ I want you to think about this one of the things we see here if you look at verse 37 so back in Deuteronomy 4 verse 37 And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. The kind of love that we're talking about here, not wait and see, see how they do, meet the conditions, okay, I love them, not that. But this is a love that it just put two things side by side. Did you catch it? Because I loved your fathers and chose the offspring after them. He loved them and he chose them. This is an electing love. It's an electing love. It's the same thing we saw. I just read it to you in Deuteronomy 7, verse verse 7. It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord, listen, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It's an electing love. He chose you. Out of all the peoples of the earth, he chose you and he set his love on you. And those two things, election and the love of God, set side by side. And that's a glorious thing to see them side by side. In the world we live in, they, they often get pit, pitted against each other. As if an, an electing God can't be a God of love, or a God of love can't be an electing God, but not in the Bible. Right here, they're side by side. He set his love on you, and he chose you. He set his love on you, and he chose you. Now, this ought, this ought, to, this ought to sit with us in a special way as the church. And here's what I mean. Like Israel has received blessing. Just like like Israel, God has spoken to Israel. Just like God has spoken to you through Christ. God has delivered Israel out of bondage and slavery. God has delivered you out of slavery to, to sin. And you ask the question, why God? Why would you do something like this for us? Is it because you met some conditions? And the answer is absolutely not. What's the answer then? Deuteronomy 7. He set his love on you and he chose you. 
Why would you do that? Not because you were impressive, not because you were more in number, not because you were righteous, none of that, but because he loves you. Because he loves you. God's election of Israel was not a cold election. It was rooted in, set in love. And in the same way, for the church, for his people, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5 says this, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world in love. In his, his choosing of us is not a cold and robotic choosing. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why have you found favor, O people of God? Why have you found favor with the Lord? It's because he's chosen you and he's loved you. He set his love on the undeserving. Man, that's a glorious thing. Back in Deuteronomy 4, what we see in verses 39 and 40 is the right response to these things. In other words, now Moses is going to tell them how to respond. He's told them to do the research project, search all heaven and earth. Has God ever dealt with a people like this before? Has this ever even been heard of before? He tells them the reasons God does this for his glory because of his love. And now he's going to say, here's how I want you to respond. Do this. Here's the right response. And the two things that are mentioned here is verse 39. They're commanded to know God. To know the Lord. In verse 40, they're called to obey God. So the right response to these things is to know God and to obey God. Now, know him. Look at the command. It's verse 39. It's a command from the Lord. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. It's a command. Know this. Know this about your God. Know who he is. Know what he's like. There's none like him. There's a command here to know him. It even says, lay it to your heart. Lay it to your heart. It's a command to know God. It's like Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It's like Hosea 6.3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And on and on throughout Scripture, know God. We're being called to know our God. I want you to consider this connection between verse 35 and verse 39. Verse 35 to you it was shown that you might know the Lord, the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Verse 39, connection. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above or earth beneath. There is no other. I'm showing you these things that you might know that He's God. Therefore, verse 39, therefore know that He's God. I'm giving you, I've given you this revelation that you might know He is God. Therefore, how do you respond? Go know God. Know Him as God. That's the connection here. Now think about how that's applied today. Have we been, give, have we been given revelation of God? 
And yeah, that's what Moses is doing all throughout here too, right? He's, he's saying those things that have happened are, are pulled together in God-breathed words and statutes and rules and commandments and promises, the words of God. We have the revelation of the word of God. Why? This revelation is given to you that you might know him. Therefore, know your God. Don't waste your revelation. God's given you the revelation of his word that you might know him. Don't waste it. Go know your God. That's the command of verse 39. Now the phrase that it puts next to, to know this is this phrase. Look at it. Lay it to your heart. Think about what that means. Think about what that means. Know that he's God. Lay it to your heart. This is not just... Just an external thing, just an intellectual thing. Okay, I got a few facts together about God. This is lay this stuff to your heart. Drive it deep into your soul. Know it at the deepest part of who you are. Our God is God. I know, I know who He is. I know what He's like. Lay it to your heart. And this language keeps being used throughout Deuteronomy. Deut Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. It says these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. Get them in your heart. What do you mean get them in my heart? Get them in your heart in such a way that the next verse says you can teach them diligently to your children. You can talk about these words when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you, when you rise up. It's like you can't shut up about these words. You can't shut up about who God is. Get it in you like that. Lay it to your heart. It says here, Deuteronomy 11 says the same thing. Listen to it again. Deuteronomy 11, 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. Get them in you so much. This, this knowledge of God, this revelation of who God is in His Word, get it in you so much that it's like, it's, it's like frontless between your eyes. It's like always before you. Lay it up in your heart. Another one that might give a little light. What does it mean? Deuteronomy 32 Verse 45 says this. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart. Lay it up in your heart. Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it's no empty word for you but your very life. Lay it up in your heart as if it's your very life, because it is. You treat the revel God has given you the revelation of God, the revelation of Himself through His Word. You treat it lightly. You don't lay it up in your soul. You don't know your God and pursue the knowledge of God. Then you're acting like it's empty. And that verse said it's not empty. It's your very life. It's your very life. Psalm 119, verse 11. I know you know it. It says, your words I have hidden in my heart. I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
hiding the words of God, hiding the revelation of who God is into your heart that you might not sin against him. Which brings me to this thought. Did you know that this is the way that you kill idols? You remember, the, again, remember the context around this. What did we hear last week in Deuteronomy 4? Warnings, you're going into the land, beware of idolatry. You're going into the land, don't make images of God. Don't, don't make images of the creation, nothing. He's warning them about idolatry. Well, how do we kill idols in our heart? How do we do that? And this is the way to do it. We kill idols by laying the word in our hearts and knowing the one true God. Can you imagine that? I've got, I've got the revelation of God out. I've shown you these things that you might know me. Therefore, know me, verse 35 and 39. And I got the revelation of God out, and I'm getting to know my God, and I'm seeing him, and I'm seeing his glory, and my affections for him are raised. And I see more about his glory, and my affections for him are raised more. And you know what's happening? Every time I'm seeing God for who he is, and my affections are raised for him, you know what keeps happening every time I do that? Idols are, idols, idols are dying. The affections are there for him and him alone. Why would I want anything else when I have this great God? You don't kill idols just by saying, don't worship that, don't worship that. You kill idols by worshiping the one true God. So Grace Community Church, this is a call for us, and I want to call us to it. This is a call for us to know our God, to know our God. And I don't mean, this is not talking about knowing God the way somebody might know a famous person. Like, you know, somebody famous out there, I know facts about them, but the reality is I don't really know them. But this is to know your God. What's the language of Scripture about believers? What's the language of Scripture? As a child to his father, that you're made sons and daughters in the kingdom. That's the language of Scripture. So know him how? Not like you, you know a famous person, you know facts, but you don't know them. Know, know your God like a son knows his father. Go to his word and get to know him as a son knows his father whom he loves. It's a call for us to know our God. And the knowledge of God leads us to the, to the last point here in, verse, in the passage, verse 40, to obey Him. To obey Him. Look at it. Therefore you shall keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today. Moses says, I'm commanding you today. But he knows he's just a mediator. You shall keep his statutes and his commandments. They're his words. They're his. Keep them. Obey, obey God through the words of this mediator. It's a call to obedience. When you know God and when you consider what he has done, the only right response, the only response that makes sense is to obey him. In fact, growth, tr true growth in the knowledge of God is a growth in obedience to God. You can't separate these two things. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4, I want you to back up to verse 5. And you tell me from verse 5 and verse 6 in Deuteronomy 4, what's wisdom? What is growth in wisdom? What's growth in knowledge? Look at it in verse 5. See, 
I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. So, so if I made you answer the question from that verse, what's wisdom and understanding? What's increase in wisdom? What's increase in knowledge according to that verse? And it's not absence of obedience. Obedience is right there with it. That growth in the true knowledge of God to know Him is to grow in obeying Him. When you know Him, you want to obey Him. So this is a call to obedience. Grace Community Church, don't be deceived. Although obedience cannot save you. Remember, this isn't a love that's earned from Christ. Although obedience can't save you, it's certainly a fruit of true salvation. And there's a, there's, there's a kind of, of, I know him, but I don't have a heart to obey him. I don't want to walk with him. This just, it's just wrong, and it's false knowing. It's false faith. And it's what we, it deceives us. That's what we hear about in James chapter 1, right? Where it says, be doers of the word. And this is in the New Testament. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Not increasing Knowledge only, hearers only. And then the next phrase says, deceiving yourself. Man, it's a deception. It's a deception to claim to know him and to have no heart to obey him. So here we're being called Israel. Israel is being called by Moses to know their God. These things have been revealed to you so that you might, you might know him. Therefore, know your God and obey him. And we can take away the same thing. We need to know and obey our God. And so, last thing I want us to mention here, I want us to think about this, a connection to the church today. Think about what's happened in this passage, okay? Moses is reminding Israel of these two major events in order to provoke them to faithfulness to God, right? He's reminding them of these two major events to provoke them to faithfulness to God. Now, these two events, were the, they were the greatest moments, they're the greatest events, greatest moments in Israelite history up to this point, right? God came down on the mountain and spoke to them, one. Two, God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Two greatest moments in Israelite history. We see those two questions in verse 33 and 34. They both mention those events. We see the correlating statements in verse 36 and 37. They both mention those events. God came down. And spoke, Mount Sinai, God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. Two major events here. Now think about how that motivation works. We've been doing it the whole time, right? God came down, don't you remember that? He spoke to you. You were in bondage, you were in slavery, and He saved you, He delivered you. Now listen, get to know Him and obey Him. You see how that motivation works, right? That's not hard to understand. That's how that provoking how that provoking happens. Now, as the church, we have these two major events to look back on and provoke our hearts to the knowledge of God and the obedience of God. We, we, we get to look back on those events too. We read Exodus, you know, we read Deuteronomy, we dig in and we get to remember those things and provoke our hearts to faithfulness to God just like them. But, and this is what I want to highlight, we have even greater works than these. Amen? Even greater works than these. 
Number one, God came down and spoke in a greater way than Sinai. <laughs> he came down and he spoke in a greater way than Sinai. John 1.1, in the beginning, you know it, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're talking about God the Son, and we're calling Him the Word. He's the Word of God. That's what He's called here. He was, he was with God, and He was God, and all things were created through Him. Without Him, without the Word, nothing was made that was made. And then, you know verse 14 of John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Do you understand that? God has come down in Jesus the Christ. He's come down. He's the Word incarnate, the Word that came. God has spoken to us, not just from words from Sinai, but flesh and blood. In a person, in Christ, in the things that he said and taught, in the way that he lived, in the death that he died, in the resurrection, in his life right now, God has spoken through Christ. That's better than Sinai. Number two, God has delivered his people from bondage. And the bondage that we've been delivered from is worse than the slavery in Egypt. Slavery in Egypt was hard. Slavery in Egypt was hard. But it's nothing like slavery to sin. It's nothing like bondage to sin that drags you to the very end of your life and then you face judgment and you go to hell forever. Nothing like that bondage. So our deliverance, the people of God's deliverance from bondage is greater than that which happened in the exodus in Egypt. It's a greater exodus led out by Jesus, the great mediator. And he has saved us from bondage to sin and brought us into eternal life through the blood of Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Man, that's a greater, that's a greater deliverance. These are the greatest moments, the greatest events for the Christian. Remember what he has done. Brothers and sisters, remember what Christ has done. The one who spoke to us through Christ. The one that has delivered us through Christ from the, from the bondage of sin. Remember what he's done and be provoked in your hearts, even more than Israel. Be provoked in your hearts to know your God and to want to obey him, to long to obey him. Now there's one more, one more event mentioned here that we skipped over. I wonder if you caught it. Deuteronomy 4, verse 38. One more event. Deuteronomy 4, verse 38 says this. Driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in. Somebody bringing them in. He delivered them out of Egypt. Now he's going to bring them in to the promised land. To bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Now, when Moses said these words, 
This is something that was still in process. God had already cleared out some nations that were greater than them and cleared the path, and he's going to do it even more so as he begins to give them the promised land, take them across the Jordan into the land that he has promised. It's a, it's a, this piece of it was in process. And again, with the church, with the church of Christ, there's a parallel here. We are in process. There's a promise that one day we're going to see Jesus. We're going to be made perfect. And we're going to inherit not the land of Canaan, but we're going to inherit the earth. We're going to inherit the land that he has given us. And here's what's glorious about it. It surely will happen. Jesus will do it. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23 says it like this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and what a promise right here. He will surely do it. Consider these things and be motivated, be provoked to faithfulness to God. Let's pray. Father, we want to worship you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the sweet privilege that we get to read it. And we get to think on it, Lord, and that you rule us and encourage us through it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the word made flesh and we've beheld his glory. Thank you for the greater exodus, Lord, for you have freed us from bondage to sin. And God, we give you praise that, that you've, made, you've made these promises, that you're faithful and you will do it. You will hold us to the very end until we cross Jordan. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.